And as you settle in your seats there, take your Bibles again and follow along as I read in John chapter 13, those last few verses, and we'll move on into chapter 14 this morning, beginning in verse 36 of John 12. We are again glad to have our guest. We do hope you filled out the information there in the green register that's requested, and we'll love to drop you a note. Um, we have been in the book of John for a good while. Pastor Morris, since his arrival, has been uh, uh, carrying on uh, his treatment of the book of Ephesians in the evening. We're already into chapter 5 there. So uh, before long, we'll be moving from Ephesians, but uh, we won't be moving from John uh, in any time soon, as you can tell from where we are right now. But it's our tradition here at Covenant to preach through the scriptures uh, in a what's called a Lectio Continua fashion. That just simply means through the books consecutively and looking at the word of God the way God gave it to us. He didn't give it to us uh, a bit here and a bit there and a bit over there, but he gave it to us page by page, paragraph after paragraph. God's word, inerrant, infallible, the only truth that we have for our faith, for our lives. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word endures forever. And let's pray. Ask God's blessings on his word read and preached now. We do, Father. Thank you for your word. We ask that you would enliven us in our bodies. Keep us from uh, that, uh, that often... Uh, as it is often the case from, from getting uh, sleepy and, and, and lazy as we sit. May our minds be illumined so that we might hear your voice clearly. There's nothing wrong with your voice. We're the problem. So we pray for you to illumine our minds so that we will hear you when you speak. That we, we might not 
leave this place as we came, but we would receive from you what we need to go out more like Jesus. We pray this in his wonderful and marvelous name. Amen. Well, over the past two Lord's Days, we've considered in a small way our Savior's handling of the betrayal. It goes back up to verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then we looked at how that Jesus sets that in motion and sends Judas out to go do what he was going to do, that is, betray the Lord that very evening. We saw his human pain, his anguish, as is mentioned there. Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and yet we also recognize that even though in his humanity, in his human nature, he was, per- he was perplexed, he was troubled, but in his divinity, in his deity, in his godness, he was not. He was in perfect control. And so he, he took the, the bread, he dipped it, he gave it to Judas, he sent him out to do what he's going to do. Perplexed in his human nature, unperplexed in his divinity. No other religion has that in their God. Do you understand that only Christianity offers a Savior and a God who can sympathize with you and yet not get bogged down in your sins and your concerns? None. Any religion that says their God understands compromises their God's deity. Only Christianity can maintain the full deity of the Savior and understand us perfectly in our humanity. That's a reason to believe. It's one of John's purposes, isn't it? That we might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. Now, we've also seen that the Lord is now on his trek to the cross. And that cross is going to be the means to which he's glorified. Verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So it's imminent. It's now. We're right on the cusp of it. We saw last week in looking at Ezekiel chapter 1 how we're to think about the glory of God and this whole glorification concept. And it's seen there wonderfully and mysteriously in Ezekiel 1 with the throne that's on the wheels, that's on the move in every direction. And we realize when we start talking about the glory of God, we're talking about something that's way above our ability to fathom. It's the reason when the Shekinah glory would come to the tabernacle or to the temple the people couldn't, couldn't, couldn't grasp it, and so they were, they, they, were, they were not even there, present, because it was too much for them. They'd be overwhelmed by it, overcome by it. It's one of those things we know about God. It, you know, it's, it's a bit like poor Job. 
when he says at the end, I, I've known you, but I've not known you. <laughs> we know our God through the accommodating scriptures that he's given us. But when we start trying to speak of him and his glory and his grandeur as it's illustrated in, in places like Ezekiel. when Remember when Isaiah sees the train of his robe filling the universe, he falls on his face. Woe is me. As I said last week, we do God a, a disservice and we do ourselves a disservice when we talk casually and glibly like, oh, we got God figured out. And we have God in a, a nice little neat box here. We can know everything we need to know for salvation, but the secret things of the Lord, we can't know. We can see little, little glimpses of it. In fact, we're told in earlier in John, when Jesus did the miracle, that first miracle, that first sign, remember, the water to wine. And it wasn't a cheap wine like you'd buy at Aldi's. It was the best. And when he, when he turned the water into wine, we're told that his glory was revealed. So we get little glimpses of it in the turning the water to the wine. But we don't get anything like Ezekiel saw because his glory is way beyond just a sim simple little miracle, simple to him, little miracle like the water to wine. So we saw that. And then we saw him address the little children, a term that John's going to pick up on and use in his letters. And then he says, as I said to the Jews, I'm saying to you now where I'm going, you cannot come. And that's where Peter runs to in this passage in verse 36. It's interesting to me that Peter does not run to a new commandment I give you or I'm going to be glorified at once. Peter doesn't go there. He goes to, where are you going, Lord? Did you notice that? Where, where, where is it you're going that I can't go? After all, I'm one of the apostles. I'm one of the apostles. I'm one of the guys. We've been with you for three years. Where you went, we went. Why can't I go? In fact, I will go. And then he sort of kind of gets it right because he, he, he and Peter's being genuine here. He, he thinks he's going to follow the Lord. He even thinks he'll do it and lay down his life for the Lord. But again, he's, he's not quite understanding, is he? Because the Lord's ways and our ways are not the same. And we don't think God's thoughts the way we ought to often. And sometimes we can't even because they're so high and so marvelous. He's thinking about something physical and Jesus is obviously talking about his glorification. Jesus is thinking through the cross, through the 40 days, to the ascension and his enthronement, his, his session 
being restored with the Father on the throne. Now is the Son of Man glorified. The cross was important for us. It was a means for him to return to his glory, to his full glory. Not just the little glory that was exhibited in the miracles and the signs, but the full glory of Ezekiel 1 that we can't comprehend. And that's on the throne in the heavens. Peter's thinking something physical. Because that's the way we think, isn't it? That's who we are. We're physical. We touch. We feel things. Peter's just not. And by the way, that's, that's a good reminder that Peter's not God and he doesn't understand everything. And we're not always understanding everything properly. And Jesus responds to him. And that's the third point that you've seen printed for the past two weeks, but it's, it's tweaked a little bit this week. The sovereign servant sage exposes the weakness of finite disciples. That was the original point three, but I added, and encourages the weak. So he's going to expose Peter's weakness here. He's going to expose Peter's inability to comprehend what's being said. He's going to point out his finitude. Aren't you glad God does that for us as we read his word over and over? It points out our finitude, that we are lacking, that we need him to understand. We need him because we're not, we're not competent in and of ourselves. I was preaching at Morgan County this past week, and a, a, a friend of some of the men who go up there and of uh, Jeremy Ingram uh, said, uh, I, was, I, was, I was poking just a little bit because he's, he's, a, he's a good Baptist and he's getting closer to being a better Baptist. That would be a Presbyterian. But he just suddenly said, well, I'm independent Baptist. And he was kind of cutting up. But I said, now, that's a statement of finitude if I've ever heard one. None of us are independent. We're all dependent on someone, something, somehow, somewhere, but ultimately to God. There is no such thing as independence in a pure sense. Only God is independent. Only God is self-sufficient. Only God is self-sustaining. Only God is self, period. He was joking, as I said. But it gave me the opportunity, and I said, Here, Jesus, just as he exposed Peter's finitude, Peter's independent way of thinking. And he does it when he says, Will you, he asked the question, will you lay down your life for me? And then he answers the question. Did you notice that? Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? No, you're not going to. Not yet anyway. Truly, truly. He gives it that emphasis. Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow, the sun will not rise till you have denied me three times. 
You won't go with me. You won't die with me now. He had told him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. And Peter says, no, I'm going to follow you now. And he just contradicted the Lord. Peter's contradicting the Lord at two levels. A, on the physical level, no, not now, Peter, afterwards. And he did, afterwards. But he didn't then. He's contradicting the Lord also on this, not about the cross, it's about glory. You can't go with me where I'm going now, Peter, but you will later. You know, it's just best, folks, not to argue with Jesus. It's just best not to argue with God. Now, I don't say that in the sense of not praying, because much of our prayer life is arguing like Moses did with God. There is a sanctified arguing. This is not it. Peter's just not paying attention. Don't argue when you don't pay attention. You know, that happens sometimes in the classroom, doesn't it? I mean, we've got teachers sitting here, and I taught for, for many years, still do some. And sometimes the reactions betray the fact that you didn't listen to me. You weren't paying attention. I don't know what you were doing back there, but you weren't listening or you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. Your arguments, you're arguing against yourself, not against me, because you didn't listen to me. That happens at every level. So don't argue with Jesus unless you really listen and you're praying and asking for something that's hard to ask for. Well, That's Jesus putting his finger on the finitude of Peter and on every one of us. We're all like that, aren't we? We all fall in this same trap with Peter. As I like to say, before you ever kick Peter around, uh, just ask yourself, have I ever walked on water? And the answer is no for any of us, but Peter did. But he still deserved the the, the accusatory finger here of the Lord. But notice something. Remember back to where we began. John is not doing chronology necessarily. John's taking historical reality, historical events, and he's piecing it together to put together something of a theological treatise to give us plenty of reasons to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of Man, Son of God, Savior of sinners. Right? That's the point. We don't have any reason to think that chapter 14, verse 1, historically followed this accusatory finger. But John puts it there for our well-being. Because right now we're all feeling like, You know, if I've ever denied Jesus, if I've ever not listened to Jesus properly, if I've ever not defended Jesus as I ought to, if I've ever not thought about his his holiness the way I should and denied him what he should have, his glory in heaven, and tried to drag him down into my, my muck and my mire, if ever 
Well, see, once we start thinking that way, we're going to be... Can you imagine how Peter felt after Jesus says this to him? You're going to deny me, Peter, three times. And sun's not even going to be up yet. And it was dark then, remember? And it was night. The darkness, not only of the evening, but the darkness of sin was at its, at, at its, at its highest point. The machinations of men had never been, of machinations of men to kill Jesus, never been any higher. Can you imagine how Peter felt? There around the fire, as they began, you're with him, aren't you? No. Now wait. Somebody else comes up. Hey, that guy, he's one of them. No, not one of them. You're mistaken. And then the third, and then the rooster began crowing. Can you imagine? Not only when Jesus said this to him, the indignant, can't you imagine indignant? Indignancy rose up in Peter when Jesus said this. No, I'm still not going to do it. And then he did, just within a few hours. Can you imagine how his countenance must have fallen? Can you imagine how his heart must have sank? And when our countenance falls, when we betray the Lord, and we do, when we don't defend him, when somebody says something wrong about him, when somebody misuses his name and we don't say, hey, don't talk like that, please. That's my Savior you're talking about. And we don't, and we don't, and we don't. Or we say something that we ought not to say. And then the Spirit convicts us, and our hearts melted. Well, here's what you do. When those, when those times come, when you fail, one way or the other, you go to this passage and you say, what would John have us think about? Ultimately, what would God have us think about? Because John's writing under the inspiration. He's composing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The, the direction of the Holy Spirit. What would he have us think? He'd have us think this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's, that's where we should go. Whenever sin rises up, our hearts drop down, we go to let not your heart be troubled. In my father's house. Then he gives them reasons. You believe in me? Believe also, you believe in, in God? Now there's some variation on text here. Some say you believe in God. Believe also in me. Uh, it doesn't matter really. It doesn't affect the meaning whatsoever. Our faith is to be in God. Our faith is to be in the one who reveals God to us. That is the son of God. The second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives us two, two things that we're supposed to believe. Remember, faith has to have proper object, namely Jesus Christ. But in Jesus Christ, we're supposed to believe, and John has pointed this out over and over, we're supposed to believe what he says. We're supposed to believe what he did. We're supposed, you can't just abstract Jesus. Well, I believe in Jesus. Well, do you believe he did the miracles? Do you believe he did this? Do you believe he did that? Do you believe he said this? Do you believe he said that? Well, no, you know, I'm not sure about that. You know, we had this whole wild world a few years ago and still people 
hang on to it. People going through, scholars going through the New Testament, color coding parts of the New Testament that Jesus, oh, he absolutely said that. Eh, probably didn't say that, but maybe said it. No, no, and then absolutely, you know, well, yeah, he said that. Sort of the Thomas Jefferson Bible. If you don't know what that means, Thomas Jefferson, he would have been, he would have loved computer cut and paste. Back when he was inventing his Jefferson Bible, he just basically take out all the stuff that's God and leave me with a super duper man and that's who I'll, that's, that's what I want to be. That's my Jesus, the superman, not the super God. People live that way today. You can't have that kind of God and have genuine faith. You have to believe what he said. And Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms. Let me stop there. Some of you grew up on the old King James, the antiquated mansions, not in the text. Rooms. And that makes more sense. We're going to the new heavens and new earth. And there's room there for everyone. Now... That's not the main issue here, though. That affects nothing either way either. My father's house, this is the second time we've encountered my father's house coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. The first time was in chapter 2 and had to do with the temple. Jesus going in and cleansing the temple. My father's house. It's not a place for, for trafficking. It's not a place for selling stuff. It's a house of prayer. He's talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem. Now, obviously, he's not. He's talking about what the psalmist calls the sanctuary of the Lord, where, where God resides. And that's everywhere. That's everything. We see it in the Psalms. We see it. Also, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 2, we read of this heavenly house, the Lord's abode. And there we're told that Jesus is a minister in the holy places in the true tent or true sanctuary or true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. See, the tabernacle of the Old Testament, the temple of the Old Testament, it was all just pointing us to him. It had no significance except when he inhabited it. It was the place where he was with his people. And we go to the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21, 22. We get the very same thing we just got in Hebrews chapter 8. He is the tabernacle. There is no physical building. That's what makes Zionism so absurd, that there's any significance to the rebuilding of a temple, a physical temple. Jesus, book of Hebrews says, he's the temple, he's the tabernacle. We don't look to something physical, we look to the one and only Jesus Christ. To deny that is to deny the scriptures plain and clear. He not only says... I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm it. 
But he says, here's what you need to, here's how you get your hearts out of trouble. I'm going to come again. If I go and prepare a place, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. See, our faith is in Jesus Christ, but it's in also what he's done, what he's doing, and what he says. And that includes his coming again. That he's coming again. That's the reason John closes the book of Revelation and the book of the Bible with even so come Lord Jesus. Because that's where his faith lived in the coming of Christ. All that Christ had done and all that Christ would do and his final coming again. I want to read you a little portion. When you read this passage and you realize that that's, that's him talking to his little children. That's Jesus talking to his little children. Little children, I have to talk straight to you sometimes. I have to point my finger at you sometimes. I have to correct you, just like your parents do, children, right? They have to, no, no. We have to stop them. We have to correct them. We have to rebuke them sometimes to give them proper instruction. And that's because we love you. And it's because he loves us that he does that. He loved Peter. That's why he stopped him and said, no, Peter, let me tell you how it's going to be. I have to tell you the truth, Peter. But then immediately, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't live in this downcast. Don't live in this sin. Come out of this state. You can trust me. I'm, I'm taking care of you. I'm all that you need. Because you're my little children. I love you. We're going to come back to the first verses of chapter 14 next week. But I want to close. If you've not heard anything else or nothing else seems to have made sense, listen to this. This is Thomas Brooks. We're doing this at the pastor's class. Heaven on Earth. A treatise on Christian assurance. And this is just in the very epistle to the saints that Brooks writes. This is who we are as little children. This is how our God sees us. Yes, even though he has to point at us and, and correct us and shush us and sometimes spank us. And then he says, don't, but don't be troubled. I love you. And I'm preparing for you. I'm taking care of you. And here's why. This is how Brooks opens his treatise. You are those worthies of whom this world is not worthy. You are the princes that prevail with God. You are those excellent ones in whom is all Christ's delight. You are his glory. You are his picked, called, prime instruments, which he will make use of to carry on his best and greatest work against his worst and greatest enemies in these latter days. You are a seal upon Christ's heart. You are engraven on the palms of his hand. Your names are written upon his breast as the names of the children of Israel were upon Aaron's breastplate. You are the epistle of Christ. You are the anointed of Christ. You have the spirit of discerning. You have the mind of Christ. You have the greatest advantages and the choicest privileges. 
to enable you to try truth, to taste truth, to apply truth, to defend truth, to strengthen truth, to uphold truth, and to improve truth. That's who we are. That's why let not your hearts be troubled. Though we sin, though we think wrongly at times, that's how God sees us because that's how he sees his son, Jesus Christ. We are his precious little ones. We should rejoice in that. Father, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for pointing us back to where we need to be always when we're troubled, when we sin, and that's to Jesus. We are your dear ones. Thank you for loving us because we're not very lovely most of the time. We ask, Father, that you might, in fact, if there's any here today who do not know Jesus Christ and are not seeing themselves described in all these wonderful manner, may they trust Jesus now and find themselves to be precious little ones, anointed ones, discerning ones, jewels in the crown of King Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.